This is the Bible Book Club, where each episode we dive deep into the only book written 2,000 years ago that can still change your life today. Welcome to the club! Last episode, we were in chapters 21 and 22, and these were the commands for the priests to be holy, this holiness theme that we've been on, and also the commands for the priests regarding the offerings and how they were to behave. And all of this had to do with being set apart, not behaving like the world, being in the world, but not of the world. Uh, So chapter 21 was the rules to prevent the priests from being tempted to adopt the ways of Egypt or Canaan. And the rules of how the priests were to mourn, who they could marry, all again, so that they wouldn't adopt the ways of the world. And then 22 was the rules on what and who could eat those offerings that they were being given, that were being given to God. And then what has become of the priesthood and sacrificing today. For the Jew, sacrificing has been replaced with prayer. And for the Christian, sacrificing has been fulfilled by Jesus' death on the cross, and so we can live in freedom today. And that completes everything in Leviticus regarding the priesthood. Today, in this episode, chapter 20, we're going to cover chapters 23 um, and 24, and that's going to bring us back to the bottom of our pyramid outline, which is in the show notes again today. We started this outline with ritual sacrifice way back in the beginning in Leviticus 1 through 7, and we're going to finish in this episode with ritual feasts, a focus on when and how to celebrate God's holy times or holy days. The old English word for holy day morphed into the word holiday around 1460 AD. Sometime after that, it took on a secular meaning as a day exempt from labor. When you consider how important holy days were to the Lord, and we've just read a lot about that in Leviticus. It, this is dis, a disturbing blurring of lines. Think about how Christmas and Easter, our holy days, are now described as holidays and are lumped in with Valentine's Day and Halloween. After reading Leviticus and God's parameters for holiness, I feel for certain that I have not been as reverential as I should in regard for my holy days. In fact, I'm going to try to stop calling them holidays because they really are different from secular holidays. Now, I think there's also a lot of secularizing, if that's a word. Correct. Things that we've done to those holidays, holy days, Mm -hmm. like the Easter bunny. And I have nothing against the Easter bunny. I like him and he brings my kids candy every year still. And they're older. (laughs) Right. But, But certainly it dulls the point of those holidays. Yeah. It's been a wearing away, just like the word morphed from holy days into holidays and then gained a secular meaning. Our holy days have morphed into holidays. And it happens without you even realizing it. Oh, yeah, for sure. It wasn't intentional. Those are fun little ways to make the holidays fun. Yeah, and it was... It degrades the value. And it was just a way for people to sell stuff, you know, capital capitalism at its best. Now, if you've journeyed with us through season two of Exodus, some of the of Israel's holy days that we're going to discuss today should sound familiar. Leviticus, however, is the only book to list these seven annual holy days in calendar order. 
Each feast or festival has a unique focus on some aspect of who the Lord is or what he has done for his people. In short, they are a time to pause and really reflect on God and remember his faithfulness. The result from the holy day should be a renewed faith and a desire to press on in faith. For those of you who have read about these holidays throughout the Bible and really want to get this nailed down, we have a printable chart in the show notes. The chart includes two holy days that were added later in Israel's history, so we're not going to discuss them in this episode. And they are the Feast of Dedication, or Festival Lights, or Hanukkah, which celebrates the rededication of the temple in 165 B.C., And the Feast of Lots, also called Purim, which we will read all about in Esther. The other cool thing about these feasts or festivals is they also include an additional seven days of rest as they occur throughout the year on top of the weekly Sabbath that they rest on. The number of seven additional days, again, pointing to God's creation and that number of completion, it just crops up everywhere. So speaking of the ones that were already talked about Mm -hmm. in Exodus, Mm -hmm. if you compare them side by side, were there anything added to this version in Leviticus or are they just kind of God repeating some things because everything was oratorially given at the time and they just needed to remember it? I think in this account of Leviticus, it's interesting because they're more concise and he doesn't get into how to sacrifice all the animals. He literally just gets into the purpose and he lists them in calendar order. So you'll see there's four in the spring and then three in the fall. And again, it creates this cadence for them of how to treat God in a holy way and reminds them. You'll see when we describe them of just everything he's done for them. It really was very interesting how God created the year for them. Okay, so moving on, the laws for ritual feasts. These are special days starting in chapter 23, the appointed times of holy days starting with the Sabbath. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. So this is not one of those seven holy days, but he's setting it up because we're going to build on it. The Sabbath is a law that originated in Genesis 2, the story of creation. Our work week is modeled after God's work in creating the world. Six days of work with one to rest. God's design for the week still holds today. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, There is no astronomical basis for a seven-day week. The week's origin is generally associated with the ancient Jews and the biblical account of creation. However, some believe that the Jews borrowed it from the Babylonians. Not me. I think it originated right here. God's desire for us to treat this holy day, the Sabbath, as a day of rest still exists. Abraham Lincoln said this about the Sabbath. As we keep or break the Sabbath day, we nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope by which man rises. He's saying the Sabbath, that day of rest, is the day by which hope rises. And I'm going to get to why 
coming soon because this Sabbath is, like I said, is here, not as one of the feasts or festivals because we're going to build on it. So what is the hope that Lincoln speaks of? It is a relationship with God. It is the very reason that God was putting the Sabbath and the seven holy days throughout the year in place to remind them of God, to remind them of their relationship, and to remind them of their covenant with him. Today, the Sabbath is a reminder to us of our hope to come. Andrew Wiley, a pastor and educator from the 18th century, said it like this. The Sabbath is the link between the paradise which has passed away and the paradise which is yet to come. He's talking about the garden that they lost in Genesis after the, before the fall and the promise of eternal life to come. And William Wilberforce said this about the Sabbath. Oh, what a blessing is Sunday interposed between the waves of worldly business like the divine path of the Israelites through the sea. It is in keeping a Sabbath day that we find God's path forward. It certainly worked for Wilberforce. God led him down a path that resulted in the abolition of slavery in England. Just as God led Moses down a path that resulted in the Israelites' redemption from slavery in Egypt. What would become of us if we kept the Sabbath? The freedom of people and the saving of many lives. That's what resulted for Wilberforce and for Moses. More on that next week. Now, the Sabbath for the Christian is Sunday. And when I say the Sabbath, that day of rest for us now is Sunday. Yeah, because for the Jews, it started at sundown on Friday and Correct. went through Saturday. Correct, my half-Jewish friend. And I can't wait to share a Bible bender about that in the next episode. But can it be another day if you must work on Sunday, as is the case of many? Because where would we be without hospitals on Sunday? Yes, of course, you can choose your air quotes, Sabbath for any day. The point is to dedicate it to rest and to the Lord. The question for us is, do you have a day set aside? How holy is your day? How much do you rest? Because in our crazy, busy culture, we must find a way to bring back a Sabbath or a day of rest, one out of seven. That's all God is asking for. How can we make Sunday less like a holiday and more like a holy day? Where would our rest, or as Wilberforce calls it, the divine path, take us if we did? I will admit to using Sunday <laughs> mornings as a Sabbath day yeah. when I go to church. And then in the afternoon when I get home, I'm running to the grocery store and I'm doing some laundry and I'm <laughs> scheduling some lunches for people. You know, like I just... I got that. I got stuff to do. Oh my gosh! I was so convicted. I was I was writing this podcast on Sunday, thinking, <laughs> can I count this as a day of rest? I don't feel like it's rest, but I am in the Word of God. Does it count? It's hard. It's just hard. We've packed out our schedules. Okay, so let's talk about these seven holy days. The first four take place in spring. The first and second holy days of the year were the Passover. And the Festival of Unleavened Bread, and they're kind of tied together. 
Verse 4, these are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Okay, so God's laid down the laws for that one day rest in every seven day week. And now he's laying down the rules for these seven special days throughout the year. And how fitting is it that he starts with the Passover, which commemorates God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, where we started in this book, actually in Exodus. Then he moves to the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which also commemorates God's deliverance from Egypt and starts the day after Passover with a day of no regular work and ends seven days later with another day of no regular work. Regular work was a trade or occupation. So cooking and light work was permitted, like housework or whatever you had to do to like feed your people. Oh, good. So it's fine that I come home from church and throw a bunch of loads of laundry. Exactly. This, This day counted for no regular, like you weren't supposed to go do your job. Now, these are the first two of the seven annual additional days of no work. Okay, the third holy day was the offering the first fruits. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it'll be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil, a food offering presented to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hin of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. The Feast of First Fruits was an offering of the first of the harvest in anticipation of the full harvest to come. It took place during the week-long Festival of Unleavened Bread. So we're still not exact same time frame. Just a few days after the Passover, No day off for this one, because, of course, the Feast with the Unleavened Bread, which surrounded it, had a day in the beginning and the day at the end. Over a thousand years later, Jesus rose from the dead on this holy day. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus was the first fruit of those to be raised to life, and an anticipation of the harvest to come, the harvest of believers. To make this day even more significant, these are the other things that happened on this exact day. Noah's Ark landed on Mount Ararat on this day. The Israelites crossed the Red Sea on this day. And the manna stopped and the people ate of the fruits of the promised land for the first time on this day. We could spend a lot of time analyzing the tie between why this day is so important, but we're not going to because I didn't have time. And we didn't have time in this podcast too much to cover, (laughs) but I was fascinated. 
All right. The fourth and holy day was the festival of weeks. Verse 15, from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an epath, epath of the finest flour baked with yeast as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a food offering and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On the same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so some fun facts about the Festival of Weeks. It was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. Again, lots of sevens there. It was seven times seven days which gets you 49, and then the next day is that 50th day. We're going to hear about that again. Offerings were given in thanks for the full harvest, and again, a day off work was provided. Now, here's another perfectly timed New Testament holy day that falls on the same day as this Old Testament festival of weeks. It is the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus is raised from the dead on the day of first fruits, representing the first of the harvest, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurs on the day of Pentecost, which implies that the day of Pentecost is symbolic of the festival of weeks and represents a great harvest, but of converted people this time rather than crops. That is fascinating, and I don't think there was a coincidence there. Oh, no, no coincidence <laughs> at all, ever in the Bible. And, of course, we get one more day off work for this one. Now, there's a little um, couple sentences at the end that I want to talk about. This was God's provision at the end of the harvest. And I love this about the Lord. We're going to read a lot about this coming up. Just his care for the poor. While most of Israel would be celebrating the harvest and everything that God had brought into their family and provided for them, there are always poor and God does not forget them here in these last two sentences. Um, he provides that they can collect from the very edges of the field. So, you know, I guess they had some kind of process for where the, how they read from the field, but they weren't to go back and kind of pick up every last grain. Those grains were reserved for the poor. And once the owner had collected all the grains, the poor could come behind and pick up what was left over. And there is a beautiful story about this provision of God's in the book of Ruth that we will really enjoy when we get to it. So the last three holy days take place in the autumn and all in the seventh month. There's that seven again, the end of the harvest and of work, just like creation. So the end of their work from their agricultural year occurs in this seventh month. This first 
holy day in the autumn is the fifth holy day, and it is the festival of trumpets. And really quick before I read this, I have a question. The seventh month doesn't necessarily correlate with our seventh month of July, right? It was not necessarily um, January, February, March, April, May, June. Their year started at a different point. Verse 23. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. The Festival of Trumpets is called Rosh Hashanah today. There's not a lot of information here, but it is thought that the blowing of the trumpets was a musical prayer, acknowledging and requesting the Lord's favor. It may also be a call to remember that God is with them in preparation for that big day of atonement, which is 10 days later. And that's when the high priest would enter the most holy place on behalf of all of Israel. This was a regular day off of work. The sixth holy day is the Day of Atonement. Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, the 10th day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the Day of Atonement, when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is the day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening you are to observe your Sabbath. The Day of Atonement is also called Yom Kippur, and it is the holiest of holy days. And we discussed this a lot in episode 16, so I'm not going to reiterate that. You can go back and listen. On this day, there is no feast, only fasting. It is the day the people's sin and impurity were cleansed and removed so that they could continue in fellowship with God. Only on this holy day, there will be no work at all. And you know, they're fasting, so there was no cooking, but there is no work. Everybody stops. The seventh holy day is the Festival of Tabernacles. Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's Festival of Tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing food offerings to the Lord. The burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings required for each day. These offerings are in addition to those for the Lord's Sabbaths and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the freewill offerings you give to the Lord. So beginning in the 15th day of the seventh month, after you've gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is the day of Sabbath rest. And the eighth day is also a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. 
All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I really should have counted how many times you've read the number seven. And the number of times I've read, do no work. Do no work. Well, I know that. That's said seven times. But the number seven is so important, and I really can't wait for next week to talk about it more. All right, the Festival of Tabernacles, also called the Festival of Booths or the Ingathering, is known today as Succoth, the Hebrew name for booths. It lasts for seven days and has a closing ceremony on the eighth day. The people gathered branches and made temporary shelters called booths to remind them how the Israelites lived when they were delivered from Egypt. So right now, actually, when they're hearing these instructions, there's camp, they're camped out at Mount Sinai living in kind of these makeshift tents is what I think. On the first and eighth day of this festival, there is no regular work. And that's our seventh day of no regular work. Verse 44. So Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed festivals of the Lord. That is the end to God's description of the ritual feasts. And they are still at Mount Sinai. Like I said, they are camped out. This is all in preparation for the big move toward Canaan. However, we have a few more rules for the laws regarding the oil and bread. In chapter 24, Moses is going to once again address how to handle holy things. It feels to me like he forgot it earlier in Leviticus and he just sticks it in here because it, it, he, after, you know, earlier on, he covered the animal dissection and slaughtering detail ad nauseum, but somehow it seems he forgot about the oil and the bread, which frankly, I would never forget because it would be the only thing I could eat after the butchering of all those animals. But here it is in chapter 24. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning continually. Outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning continually. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. The lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord must be tended continually. Take the finest flour and bake 12 loaves of bread using two-tenths of an ephath for each loaf. Arrange them in two stacks, six in each stack, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. By each stack, put some pure incense as a memorial portion to represent the bread and to be a food offering presented to the Lord. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat in the sanctuary area because it is the most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. It's rather disappointing that the olive oil is for the lamps and not for dipping the bread in. That's all I can say. The lamps, however, were very important. We learned in season two of Exodus that the golden lampstand in the holy place must be kept burning all night. There must always be light. And we're going to talk about that more next episode. The light represents God's presence within the tent. Bible bender alert. It's coming. The bread was also called the bread of presence since it was set directly before the presence of the Lord in front of the curtain to the most holy place. 
The word for the loaves was challah, and they were quite large, at least five and a half pounds and somewhat flat so they could be stacked. Frankincense was also placed by each pile of bread. Okay, next we have the laws regarding God's name. Now, here we have another odd insert into this list of rules. It's a story. In fact, this is the only other narrative in the entire book of Leviticus. The first being the story of the death of Nadab and Abihu, which was a warning to the priest to honor the Lord by revering his holy place. This second story is a warning to the people to honor the Lord by revering his name. Both stories described a person's sin against holiness and both result in the death of the sinner. This is the story of the blasphemer. Verse 10. Now the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites, and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse, so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri, the Danite. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. Whether foreigner or native born, when they blaspheme the name of the Lord, they are to be put to death. So the blasphemer was not just using the Lord's name as a swear word. He was actually cursing God, showing contempt and rejecting him. Mary Douglas of whom I've spoken before, translate the names so oddly inserted in the story. And by odd, I mean that I find it strange that the culprit's name, the sinner's name, is never given, but his mother's, grandfather's, and tribe's names are given. The names are actually a message, and the passage would read like this. If we substituted the names with the meanings of the names, it would, it would read like this. His mother's name was retribution, grandson of lawsuit from the house of judgment. Sometimes I think Moses and God got a little slap happy when they were writing the Torah. <laughs> like, okay, let's give him funny names. So, so were that, they were they kind of representations yeah, of like, like, like what happened? Grandson of lawsuit. There's this lawsuit. Because you see, there really is a lawsuit because they just don't know what to do with this guy because he's half Jewish, half not. So does the is the law the same for a Jew as for a foreigner? And that's why they kind of bring it before God, be, before um, Moses, like, okay, what? What what happened here? And when they say it's the daughter of Debris the Danite, and you said it's talking about the tribe, is that from the tribe of Dan to Correct. bring it back to Correct. the Correct, which is the, the house of judgment. Got the tribe it. of Dan yes. is the house of judgment. Okay. So I think it's kind of funny. Like, I don't know what Moses and God were thinking. <laughs> these people have these names. All right. The unnamed man is taken outside the camp to be stoned because anything defiling like death happens outside the camp. But it also wasn't a normal stoning because they were all supposed to put their hands on the person's head. And really, like if you think about it, when they're stoning people, which is a totally brutal thing anyway, it would be if they get hit in the head, they probably lose enough blood that they die quickly. Mm -hmm. This seems like it would be a very slow, difficult death because 
if their hands are on their head, kind of shielding the head. I don't know. I'm no, just... they put their hands on the head. So I'm going to explain that. The witnesses who actually heard this name. So back then, the name of God was never to be even spoken. So that's why it said the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse instead of saying right. the name of the Lord. Right. That's why the name, because you, yes, couldn't, say you couldn't say it back then. I didn't exactly. Know that. So the witnesses who heard God's name being said like this had heard something that was defiling. So the witnesses placing their hands on the blasphemer could have done two things. Identify the man as guilty because they were witnesses or if hearing the curse had made them impure, they were symbolically transferring that pollution back to the guilty man. The man is then stoned after they do that. In Israel, as in most ancient kingdoms, blasphemy was considered treason against the king and kingdom and therefore a capital crime. Okay, a few more principles of justice, including an eye for an eye. A very familiar concept to us. Exactly. Verse 17, anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the Israelites and they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him. The Israelites did as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, there's three principles for justice that we can get from this. First, crimes against people are more serious than crimes against property. Second, penalties must be appropriate to the crime. And third, penalties must be applied equally to all, no matter what nationality you are. Understanding the reason for the penalties is what I want to focus on. Israel had no prisons at this point and no locks on their tents. Without a prison, allowing a murderer to go free was a serious threat to the community. So the punishment seems harsh to us, but there were no choices back then. Now, this section is a chiasm, which we've talked about many times. It's a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. Chiasms are all throughout the Bible, and we've read a million of them. I just didn't point them all out. But they place importance on the passage. The structure for this chiasm centers around concern for life. So that's what we need to focus on here, not the harshness of the punishment. And that includes quality of life, not just loss of life. The Israelites all labored for a living. And without orthopedic surgeons, ophthalmologists, and dental implants, the loss of a limb or an eye was crippling and could result in poverty. This form of law is talked about a lot and has been throughout history, is referred to as lex talionis or talion law or the law of retaliation. It first appears in the Bible in Exodus 21 
and in the old Babylonian code of Hammurabi. Jesus addresses the law of retaliation in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's going to reframe it for us. And at the same time refers to one of the key verses in Leviticus, my favorite, 1918. So he's going to take this difficult principle and tie it to that beautiful verse in Leviticus 1918 to love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 5, Jesus, while speaking to the Jews who may have been tempted to invoke Italian law out of vengeance, ties together these two Leviticus verses with a challenge to love instead. In verse 38, he starts with, You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, Hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He and sends the rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Matthew, Jesus corrects the misapplication of retaliation by teaching that it is not the law of equal justice that applies, but the law of love and forgiveness. Love, not retaliation, is the mark of a righteous person. Well, there you have it. And just so you know, There will only be two more episodes of law school. I mean, Leviticus. (laughs) Did you ever think you would even read Leviticus, much less understand it in such an intimate way as Susan is bringing out all these Bible vendors? I know I have really enjoyed this and I've gotten so many Bible vendors and the tie between the Old Testament and the New Testament has been fascinating for me since I know the New Testament so much better, but it's been really fun to get all these Bible benders. So next week is the Bible bender of the whole book. So stay tuned. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible book club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.